Christian revivals have changed destinies and transformed nations. The first Great Awakening led to America's independence from Britain. This is Bob Boyd. And Jerry Boyd. This is Issues in Education. America's birth as an independent nation came from a great revival called the First Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards, who's credited with starting the First Great Awakening, preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in 1741 in Massachusetts. Some people called his sermon Hellfire and Brimstone, but Edwards countered with tears in his eyes, you can't understand the profound love of God until you understand the awful repugnance of sin to God that cost him his son. What is a true revival? Do people today need or even want a Holy Spirit revival? What's the alternative to revival? Continued apathy in a spiritually and morally degenerate nation that continues to slaughter millions of babies and continues to ignore God and his commands? Revival, get this, revival is God's remedy for a sick nation. Our guest is Daniel Norris, an expert on revival, who helped launch a church in Dallas, started a ministry training school, and held youth conferences that's reached millions of people worldwide. Daniel Norris is the author of Trail of Fire, True Stories from Ten of the Most Powerful Moves of God. Jonathan Edwards, 37-year-old preacher, he had this stamp of eternity in his eyes. Why is that so important? Yeah, Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist of the First Great Awakening, every day he would pray this prayer. He would say, oh God, stamp eternity upon my eyeballs. That was his prayer, to live every single day, every thought, every minute with eternity completely in view. And so he prayed that prayer every single day. As he's on his way down to Enfield, he was praying that prayer before he comes to Enfield, Connecticut. Enfield is a stubborn, backslidden community. It's been resistant to the fires of the Great Awakening. It's been resistant to revival. No preacher's been able to make anything happen. Here comes this man with eternity burning before his eyes. And he comes into Enfield and he sets eternity before the community. Ignites a fire that, to this day, many people know that message that was preached that night, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and at the center of that message is simply putting eternity before the audience. I mean, this is just an amazing message. And he had used it once before, apparently, with his own congregation. It fell on deaf ears. Yes. He preaches this message, sinners in the hands of an angry God, which some people would consider today, they call it a fire and brimstone message. Truthfully, it was a very truthful message. It put the reality of Judgment Day before the congregation, and it painted the picture of humanity being precariously dangled over the pits of hell, yet the only thing staying any single one of us from being plunged into those depths is the hands of a God, and not just a God, but an angry God who's angry at sin and angry at the condition of people. And that's the only hand that upholds us. And as he's painting this picture of the position that so many people in the audience that day were in, they literally saw it with their eyes. They felt it in the room. People began to groan and scream, feeling as if the ground underneath them was giving way and they were going to slide right into the pits of hell. Grown men would grab hold of one another, grabbing a hold of the pillars to the church, digging their fingernails into the pews, just in a way of trying to steady themselves because the message was so real to them. It awakened, helped them understand they're backslidden and they're away from God. And without his mercy, there was no hope. Jonathan Edwards actually never even got 
got to finish the message, there were so many groans, so much crying and wailing there in the church that day that Edwards had to dispatch the ministers that were with him, and so they tarried long into the night praying with every single individual in the church until they brought them to the cross. That's beautiful, and you described Jonathan Edwards so well. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards had a solemn face with subdued clothing, so he didn't want to attract attention to himself but to the Lord. He was not an emotional preacher, but he wasn't timid either. He chose his words very carefully and spoke in such precision it commanded the attention of his audience. Edwards' words seemed to hypnotize the audience. The power was in the words spoken as if coming from God Almighty. He didn't use drama or theatrics that others might have used. He didn't want to manipulate anyone's emotions, but he trusted the Holy Spirit to convey this urgency of eternity in the minds of the people. And so to these unrepentant sinners, his words were like pouring, I love the way he put this, hot molten steel upon raw human flesh. The crowd flinched, but the preacher continued reading. Get this, he was reading straight from his notes, rarely even lifting his head to look up. I think God chose this guy because he was so subdued, because he was so low-key that God would be seen as the author and perfecter of our faith. That was his heart. It was never to be the center of the attention, but be the one who's simply pointing to the Savior, that when eternity is set before you, it changes everything. I guarantee that if any single one of us were to put eternity before our eyes and make our decisions in light of eternity, it would probably change the vast majority of what most of us do, and the world would be better for it. Yes, it would. It's very sobering, but he had a heart for these people, and you could see the tears that flowed from his eyes. He's saying this out of love because it's the truth, isn't it, Daniel, that even few Christians realize how horrible our state is without Christ. But until God shines on our heart, how awful I am, it's absolutely petrifying. It's horrifying. So many today, they don't want to offend. What people really do need is the truth. This is what Jonathan Edwards brought that day, was simply bringing the truth. It was a hard truth, but it was brought in love. It was brought with tears. He didn't come to condemn. He came to wake people up. If I'm a drunk man on a railroad track and asleep, and there's a train barreling down, that man wants somebody to come and do whatever it takes to shake him awake to get his life out of that position to where it's about to be lost. And if we'd understand the stakes, the position our friends and family are in, or even that we ourselves are in, it's a very dangerous position, then it changes our perception to where we recognize, I'll do whatever it takes to be able to wake somebody up. Great revivalists shook their nations. They would deliver the truth, but you would always see tears in their eyes. They didn't do it out of anger or spite. They did it completely in love, and that came across in everything. It's almost unimaginable when you think about an eternity in hell. There's no escape. There's no leaving. There's no vacations. It's day after day, the torturous 12,000 degrees in a burning fire forever and ever. It's unimaginable. And yet, that's the picture that Jonathan Edwards painted. He said, God holds you over the pit of hell, much like holding a spider over some fire. God's wrath burns like fire, and he looks upon you as nothing else but to be cast into the fire. And so, when you get a view of what our sin looks like to God, who gave us his Son so that we could escape the pits of hell, then you realize the truth that God is angry with the wicked every day, as Psalm 711 says. That's a message that's not popular today. These are lines directly out of sinners in the hands of an anger. That's exactly the message that he preached. It was so contrary to what so many people would preach today. I'm convinced that if Edwards were to preach that message in the 90% of the pulpits across the nation, he'd be shouted down, pulled off the stage, because most people would say, oh, no, 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 that's not true. But every single word of what he shares is true. Scripturally based, if we have chosen to be 
become friends of the world, we become an enemy of God. That is so true, and that's the problem, because the world has infiltrated the church. And you know what is sobering is to I realize I deserve hell, and people don't like to hear that one either. They're like, well, I deserve good things. I'm entitled to love, wonder, and joy, and happiness. They haven't really realized what Christ did for them. Yeah. In that moment, what you just shared, the truth is not a single one of us deserve heaven. We haven't earned heaven. Every single one of us deserve hell. We deserve punishment. And the fact that Christ came and did that for us, took that upon himself so that we would get what we don't deserve, that's called grace. Though his message is often criticized as being a fire and brimstone message, the truth is it's one of the most grace-filled messages that you could ever preach because what it does is paint the picture of reality of where you are. But let me tell you what God's done for you, what he saved you from. So whenever I read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, what I read is everything now that I have been saved from and everything that I've been redeemed from. And I am so eternally grateful because I recognize that I did not earn it or deserve one part of it. He did it all for me. And so Edwards had grace. He said the fact that you didn't fall into hell last night was God's hand that spared you. There's no reason you already aren't in hell this very minute, but consider God's grace. And then people began to cry and shriek and yell, what must we do to be saved? They repented and they turned to the Lord because they realized once they're in hell, there's no turning back. This is the day of salvation. As you're painting that picture, the nation was awakened because of what took place in this church. People around the colonies, they're all clamoring and saying, you know, how do we get a hold of this message? We want to hear the story of what was happening there. People ask all the time, you know, what does revival look like? That's a really great picture that when the sinner is awakened to the reality of the precarious position that they're in and realize, what am I to do? And then to realize God has provided the escape in that process. That is the gospel. It really is. And it brings people to repentance, to confront their own sinfulness and just like, oh, fall on the grace and mercy of God. Copies of Edward's message were quickly printed and distributed across all the colonies. And so multiple thousands were now able to read it and experience the same message. So it went through all America, just caused the great awakening. But how would pastors respond today? You talk to several pastors about revival. And some of them said, well, we don't want it because it's uncomfortable and it makes people feel uneasy or we can't control it. Yeah, I was in a room with a dozen pastors because of my association with revival history. And then almost immediately, I started hearing pastors begin to say, well, you know, we tried that in the past. It didn't work. No, not another revival service. We don't need revival. It's too messy. They started giving all their excuses. And I looked at every single one of them. I said, gentlemen, what's the alternative? And there was complete silence because all they had was, well, let's just continue doing more of the same of what we're currently doing, but what we're doing currently is not working. You don't see America becoming more and more spiritual. You see it completely descending quicker and quicker into its own demise without us being awakened. And an awakening is revival that it can happen citywide and community-wide. The true revival that whenever it impacts our churches, that it has to then spill out from the sanctuary and into the streets. And when it does that, it starts to transform the city that's around us. I don't know what other choice there is. I don't know how else we save our communities unless we have yet another great awakening. America has had great awakenings. It's had great revivals. But, Lord, what we need is an even greater one in this time because I don't want to lose the current generation. I certainly don't want to lose it for my children. God is not out of the revival business. It's his idea, and it's what he wants to do. All we have to do is repent, fall on our face, and call upon him, and he shows up. And when he does, he changes everything. Revival always brings eternity into view and focuses each person on their eternal reality that awaits them after they die. So we fix our eyes not on the present because that causes people to be complacent, as Second Corinthians 
Romans 4.18 says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we fix our eyes on the eternal, and that really is what brought the revival in Edward's day, was to imagine you breathe your last breath on earth, you leave your body, you enter eternity, suddenly everything dramatically changes, and it's beyond overwhelming. All earthly things are unimportant. In an instant, the familiar is gone. No longer does your possessions matter, your career, your bank account. Nothing matters as you enter eternity. Do you know the way to heaven? And that's the question everybody should be asking themselves. Edward's prayed, oh God, stamp eternity upon my eyes. He said, what would happen if you and I were to boldly pray that and truly mean it? He said, if we were to do that, it would change everything. We'd have to change the way we go about our day. We'd have to change the way that we pray. We'd have to change the way that we relate to our families and our churches. The majority of what the church does today is a waste of time. And when I say that, I'm talking about eternal time. It concerns present things. And if we were to weigh it in the balance of eternity, we'd recognize that we're getting so few results for the things that we're supposed to be investing into the kingdom. And so the only way that we awaken to that is to come back to that place and say, God, put eternity before my eyes, that that day is beyond overwhelming. I do believe that the moment we step into eternity, our perspective changes. We'll begin to recognize all the things that we could have done and should have done and all the things that we shouldn't have done. And just imagining standing before God and he's going to have us give an account of everything we've done, good or bad. And people say, oh, well, you won't stand before the great white throne judgment, which is even more horrifying if somebody doesn't know Christ. But we are going to stand before God to show him what we've done, good or bad, since we've been a Christian. That is is just humbling. Honestly, take a look at ourselves through His eyes, His holiness. It is a forgotten message in the church. As rare as it is to hear a message preached about hell, even rarer is the message of the judgment of the saints. Many people don't even realize, Paul writes it in Corinthians, he says, we must all stand before the judgment seat. What we've done in this body, people will say, well, Daniel, you're talking about works. Exactly right. As Ephesians says, you know, we were saved for good works. Yes, we were saved by grace, but we were saved by grace for good works. I wasn't saved by works. I'm saved by His grace, but the moment I've been transformed, why did He do that? It's because He has a work for me to do. Just like the Master coming to the one that He entrusts the talents with, He wants an account for what He gave us. So the time, the resources, the energy that He gave us during this life, He's going to say, okay, now what did you do with that? I don't want to be the one who says, I hid those away. I want to be the one that comes to him and says, Master, you gave me this talent. Look what I've done. I've doubled it for you. And I've got something that I can lay at his feet. Because in the end, this is what it's about. It's about giving him glory. And we're all going to stand there on that day, and my works are put to the fire, as it says. It's all going to be tried by fire. Leonard Ravenhill would say, pray that day that you're not standing knee-deep in ashes. I want to be able to see that there's true treasure that's come out of those works. And in that process, then what am I going to do? I'm going to take those things and I'm going to lay them at his feet and say, it was all for you. I did not do this for me. I did it for you. I want you to receive the glory that you're due. I grieve when I think about where some of my loved ones are headed in eternity. They don't know the Lord. They may beg for mercy once they're in that place, but that day has passed. They were fully aware of the gospel, but they didn't embrace it when they had the chance. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Their sin does. The complete surprise of those who didn't expect to die when they did. What would it have been like for Pontius Pilate who sentenced Jesus to die on that terrible cross? Pilate foolishly judged Christ on earth, but Jesus will judge Pilate in eternity. He might well wish he'd pleased God rather than man. It's true. We're all going to stand in that place. In fact, we're all going to be there to watch and witness this moment. You know, as all of mankind is put on trial, the idea that Pilate 
who exercised such authority on earth now stands before the greater authority. He's going to have a perspective change. And I would pray that it would sober every single one of us. And one of the most common questions that I'm asked for people say, I don't understand how a loving God could ever send anybody to hell. And I look at him and say, you don't understand. You're already headed there. He's not sending you there. You were born headed in that direction. The fact is that a loving God then sent his son to show you in the process of how much he loves you and the extent that it took to be able to redeem you. He sent his son to die for you. His perfect, spotless, holy son shed every drop of his precious blood, and he did every bit of that. Why? Because that was the price that it took to redeem me from the hell that I was already doomed for. That shows me how much he loves me. In Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. He was in such agony that he almost died in Gethsemane, just praying to God. And just the human part of him, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from you, because he realized how horrible it was going to be. And yet he gave his will to God. He knew what was set before him were people that would come into the kingdom and share eternity with Jesus and the Father. But I mean, just think of that. The Gethsemane trial before was horrible, and then he goes and gets beaten, and then the agony on the cross, we have no idea at all. It's incomprehensible, the pain and suffering, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, beyond anything we could ever know. We don't understand the price, because if we did, we can never doubt his great love for us. It was his love that drove him to do it for us. He loved us that much that he was willing to give it all so that he could redeem us. The parable that Jesus told us that the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. The merchant goes out and he searches out and when he finds it, he then goes home, he sells everything that he has just to have enough to be able to purchase it. So why did he go to the cross? He did it because he loved us. And so the person that would ever ask the question, how could a loving God ever send somebody to hell? Don't understand his love at all. Because if you did, you would look at the cross and realize that's love. Absolutely. The days of Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening rapidly faded as the morals eroded. In 1801, the rule of law was a quick gun or a short hanging rope. And this young man, 29-year-old Barton Stone, was a pastor of this Cane Ridge Church, and 25,000 to 30,000 people gathered on the grounds. Tell us about this. This is the original camp meeting. America has expanded west. It's made its way into Kentucky, and people are spread out so few and far in between that it's hard to have a weekly gathering where you could have a consistent congregation. And so to answer that, so he said, come camp on the grounds. And so people came. He expected about 6,000 people at the most. They were going to have their services outside. It's an old log cabin church. You can actually still go visit to this day. We were just there a couple months ago. Well, what was fascinating about this, the very first day it's raining, but by the time that the sun comes up the next day and the rain has stopped, they realize that there's far more than they had anticipated. Some estimates put it at 35,000 people that had descended upon the cane fields around this log cabin church. 25 to 35,000 people they came, they camped on the grounds. There's not enough room here to be able to take care of all the people that are there. So he looked at the ministers. There were about seven ministers. They were Presbyterian, Baptist. I'm in a wonderful display of unity. He dispatches them into the crowd, and so they take up positions around the ground, some on stumps, some on carriages. Anywhere that they could get into an elevated position, they just begin to preach. They all preached, but there was no confusion. The effect was astounding. As ministers would preach, this crowd began to be overwhelmed. There's a story that I give 
live in trail of fire of a mother that's there. She's got her two daughters with her. They're like 16 and 14 years old. And as they're listening to this minister who's taking this position on a tree stump, they're so struck with what they hear, they fall to the ground in a trance. And as they're in the trance, the mom, she's frantic. She's never seen anything like this before. And she's trying her best to awaken them, to revive them, but to no avail. And alongside all of this, they had this look of agony and terror on their face. This goes on for several hours. All of a sudden, one of them stirs. And when she does, she's groaning in agony, crying for mercy, mercy. And then she falls back into this trance. And this continues until finally she calls out. She goes, Jesus. And at that moment, the agony that was on her face completely broke. This look of peace and tranquility came over her. She rises up to her feet, and now she begins to preach the gospel. She's just been radically saved. She had had a visitation where she saw hell, and then she sees Jesus. And in that moment, she's so radically saved and converted, she begins to preach. And as she preaches, her voice carries over the crowd. And as it does, a crowd begins to gather around her. There's now hundreds that are listening to this 16-year-old girl who's become a preacher. And as she preaches, the same thing happens to the people that are listening to her. They begin to be cut down to the ground. They fall over into these trances and have these same types of encounters and experiences. And this was not just happening here. It's happening all across the crowd that day. They said that it looked like at times that crowds of 50, 60, 100 at a time were just cut down as if an axe was laid to the roots of a tree and a whole forest was uprooted at once as people would begin to fall to the ground in these trances and then you have these radical encounters with Jesus. Yeah, and then they'd rise up with an intense urge to preach. So these untrained ministers suddenly declared the wonders of God. It's just amazing. Just people that had never preached before being stirred by the power of God, they were able to minister to others. And so, like you said, revival is God's arrival. We need God to come and do this again, because this isn't just something that man has stirred up. It's just an act of God showing up. Yeah, and the moment that he shows up, everything changes. People ask to find revival. You said it. I would like the simple definition that revival simply is his arrival. Revival is not a conclusion. It's an introduction. It's the moment that the king is allowed to come and take the seat that he deserves and that's the seat of superiority. He deserves it in our life, and he deserves it within our churches. This Cane Ridge revival was amazing because here are 35,000 people. What a strange sight to see bodies laying everywhere. Then finally the trance broke. It was replaced by the most serene, beautiful smile in the words, Thank you, precious Jesus. The girls had been completely transformed. I think they had a vision of hell. Nothing could scare people more than a vision of hell. And then they realized they were saved, and they were pulled back into this present time when they could see God's grace and mercy. Tell us about Andrew Murray. This revival is one of my favorites. The night that this revival is breaking out in his church house, a man comes to him. America is now in the Second Great Awakening. He walks up to Andrew Murray as his church is just wailing, calling out to God. Again, it's emotional. He's trying to call it into control. This man walks up to him and says, Mr. Murray, I imagine you're the pastor here. He says, I've just come from the United States, and the same thing you're seeing here is what we're seeing there. He said, this is the true move of God. You need to let it burn. Andrew Murray in that moment surrendered to it. One of his greatest books, Absolute Surrender. Many people don't know that he stewarded this three-and-a-half-year move of God. Something unusual was happening outside Andrew Murray's church. It sounded like a roar that grew louder and louder, like thunder rolling towards him. And it came in like a violent wind and filled the room where they were gathered. It was deafening. The effect was immediate. People began to fall on their faces, crying out with groaning and weeping. There was such force and such obviousness that God was there. It was like kerosene being poured on an open flame. And the outbreak was 
huge, tremendous outpouring of the Spirit so that nobody was untouched by it. A supernatural move of God and that sound of revival that awakened that church, roaring in the distance as it approached the church and it comes into the church, it fills the church house. It's that sound of revival. Throughout history, you find this written, you see it in the fields around Cambridge, the sound of revival, sound of the mighty Russian wind that rushes into the house and it transforms everything. And I yearn for those moments that were once again caught up in that place. But here was this guy, this old man standing beside Andrew Murray, and Andrew Murray didn't recognize him. It might as well have been an angel. The man looked straight into Murray's eyes and he told Andrew Murray, for this is the Spirit of God at work here. Was he an angel? No, he was just a visiting minister that was sent, dispatched by, I believe, by heaven, but brought there to be able to give Andrew Murray the confirmation that he needed to realize that what was happening in his church was legitimate. And the moment that he let go and let God be God, it transformed everything. Any single one of us can make ourselves available to the Lord. That's absolutely right. Daniel, maybe you'd like to say a prayer for revival. I pray, Jesus, that you would pour out your spirit in power and in grace. Lord, I pray that the presence of the ever-living God would awaken those that are listening. Oh God, stamp eternity upon my eyes to live every single day, every thought, every minute with eternity completely in view. And so, God, give us a greater awakening. America has had great awakenings. It's had great revivals. But, Lord, what we need is an even greater one in this time because I don't want to lose the current generation. I certainly don't want to lose it for my children. Lord, give us a greater awakening. Amen. God bless. God bless. Our guest has been Daniel Norris, author of Trail of Fire. When you realize the power of God in reviving a people, you begin to pray fervently and passionately for revival. A true Holy Spirit revival means people are confronted with the presence of a holy God and they get an eternal perspective. That's good. Revival is God's answer to the fervent, sustained prayers of God's people. Revival is God's remedy for a morally sick and spiritually drained nation. If you would like a CD copy of today's inspiring program, please ask for number 1813, The Third Great Awakening. That's number 1813, The Third Great Awakening. You can order a CD copy of this program from our website. Our website is issuesineducation.org. That's issuesineducation.org. Or call us at 928 776 0000. That's 928 776 0000 from Acts 2, verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. For issues in education, this has been Bob and Jerry Boyd.